I saw the place where they grubbed the tree been 25 or 30 years before. And you could see the big hole there in the ground. And I broke off a piece of the walnut root laying there and rode home with it, kept it for a long time, 10 feet in diameter. This is Amy Schumann, a core faculty member of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with a host. Today, I'll be talking with Mary Hufford on narrative memory and sensory experience. She'll be reading a narrative she collected at the headwaters of southern West Virginia's Big Coal River Valley. Mary Hufford is associate director of the Livelihoods Knowledge Exchange Network, a link tank for sustainability to connect communities, organizations, and scholars. After 20 years as folklife specialist at the American Folklife Center Library of Congress, she was on the graduate faculty of the University of Pennsylvania, where she directed the Center for Folklore and Ethnography. She's been a visiting professor at UC Berkeley and The Ohio State University and an adjunct professor at Goucher College. She's a Guggenheim Fellow and the author or editor of dozens of articles, monographs, and books, including Waging Democracy in the Kingdom of Coal, OVEC and the Movement for Social and Environmental Justice in Central Appalachia, 2002-3, Conserving Culture, A New Discourse on Heritage, Chase World, Fox Hunting and Storytelling in New Jersey's Pine Barrens, and The Grand Generation, Memory, Mastery, Legacy. By way of introduction, Mary and I are both folklorists who work on conversational narrative, and we study narrative as social interaction. Studies of narrative interaction take into account how participants in a storytelling occasion manage their relationships to each other, to their larger worlds, and to the events and characters within the narrative. Narrative is one cultural resource for negotiating meaning across these relationships in both local and larger cultural historical social contexts. This is not to say that narrative does successfully negotiate meaning, but rather that it holds out this possibility. Mary, tell us why you picked this selection, and tell us what listeners should know to understand the story. Well, thank you, Amy, for that wonderful introduction. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here uh, on the Project Narrative podcast. Well, for the past century and a half, forest policy in the Appalachian region has favored the interests of timber and mining companies, and more recently, tourism and recreation industries, leaving the needs of local vernacular world-making, that is, place-making, unaddressed. On Coal River in southern West Virginia, concepts like den trees, bee trees, wolf trees, hint at a local ontology or reality within which forest species have value beyond board feet of timber. In the sociality of women, for example, deeply hinged into the gathering of spring greens and morel mushrooms lie clues 
to the articulation of vegetal and more than vegetal networks within a gift economy. At the head of Drew's Creek on Coal River, LaFon Petri, whose passion for morel mushrooms earned her the nickname of Queen of the Molly Moochers. I should say here that Molly Moochers is the local name for morel mushrooms, which are eagerly hunted in the coves and hollows of the, the hills surrounding the Big Coal River Valley uh, each spring. Around, um, it's, it's coming up uh, in a few weeks, actually. Anyway, the Queen of the Molly Moochers, also known as LaFon Petri, once told me, we give away the molly moochers we find to people who can't get out and get any. We just believe that if we give them away, we'll keep finding more. It's a beautiful enunciation of a gift ecology. As a folklorist in the 1990s working for the American Folklife Center Library of Congress, I was interested in how such community perspectives could inform public recognition for and ethical treatment of forest communities. So public policy. I ended up doing a lot of work with environmental policy uh, in projects that were associated usually often with the National Park Service and some of their, their needs for management of many different sites. So the story that I'm about to read is set in the context of, uh, of actually a different project. The Park Service was not part of this. This was a citizen science forest monitoring project undertaken in the 1990s by the Lucy Brown Association for the Mixed Mesophytic Forest, on which the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress collaborated. The coordinator of that uh, citizen science monitoring project was a science writer named John Flynn, one of the conver conversationalists in the story you are about to hear. At issue at that time were certain claims being made by state and industrial foresters that justified a controversial form of timber harvesting and management, the clear-cutting of multi-aged, diverse hardwood ecosystems, and the replacement of those with even-aged stands of species valued as timber, such as pine, tulip tree, and maple in very limited uh, numbers of species, which could be harvested in 60 to 80-year rotations. The principle on which this was based was called Ready for Harvest, a naturalizing strategy that Older people in forest communities with memories of very large trees, recognized as bogus. In conversation with an elderly man named Dennis Dickens, his wife Ruby, and his neighbor Robert Allen, who lived at the head of Peachtree Creek, John Flynn decided to test the Forest Service's definition of readiness for harvest. The Forest Service, said Flynn, is saying that trees are ready for harvest at 80 to 100 years old. What do you think of that? Well, the conversation then ranged throughout the hills in search of giant trees, which obligingly appeared in locations throughout the headwaters of Marsh Creek, all of them hundreds of years old. The white oak at the mouth of Julie Holler, six feet in diameter. The red oak, five and a half feet, 
uh, in diameter on Joe Aleph's farm, which people called Big Red. The giant sycamore that fell just five years ago. The poplar that they felled only to realize it was too big to move, and so they left it. The cat-faced elm tree in Martin's Fork, where Job Webb kept his hogs penned up. Then Dennis Dickens asked us, Did you ever hear anyone speak of a walnut tree that they cut in Hazy once? We hadn't. There was a walnut tree, he said, stood in Hazy, just on top of the mountain at the low gap in the head of Hiram Fork, and it was curly walnut. Somebody got word out, and some companies came in and bid on it, and that walnut tree sold for a thousand dollars. It was ten feet in diameter, and the walnut tree was hollow. Now, I guess you've heard of Dr. Harv Petrie. John Flynn, then 56, had heard of Doc Petrie, though Doc Petrie had died two decades before Flynn was born. He was a young man, Dickens went on, placing the event well before his own birth in 1909, and they hired him to climb up inside the walnut tree, and he went up inside it 40 feet, and they said when he come out of there, he was just as wet as if you dipped him in the creek from sweat and the moisture inside the tree. And they had grubbed that tree, Dickens continued, alluding to an arduous method of extracting the tree by the roots using oxen or horses, and skidded it up to the head of Hiram Fork and went down Farley's branch on Palm Pond Fork and loaded it in log wagons there, and hauled it to Davie in McDowell County. And there were 22 wagon loads of it. I saw the place where they grubbed the tree been 25 or 30 years before, and you could see the big hole there in the ground. And I broke off a piece of the walnut root laying there and rode home with it, kept it for a long time. Ten feet in diameter. Now, in this story, Dennis Dickens curates what sociologist John O'Neill calls time's body. He's meticulously attentive to sensory details as they had come to him through the speech of elders when he was a boy. Unfolding over many decades, this collaborative production of the living and the dead catches all of us up in the tree's storied sensibility. Here, uh, Dickens inserts a pair of witnesses to the credibility of those from whom he heard the story of the walnut tree in Hazy Gap, the wallow and the root of the walnut tree. By its root and the size of its track, the tree bore witness not only to itself, but to the truth of what the elders had perceived and related to Dickens. Contesting Forest Service policy, the story illuminates the role of forest species in a narrative ecology, what I I call a narrative ecology, that produces and renews multi-generational time. Dickens's story refutes the idea that readiness for harvest can be reduced to a number of years or that trees have life expectancies similar to those of humans. 
Thank you. Well, that's a terrific story. Now that we've heard it, though, um, before we discuss it, uh, tell us a little bit more about your research in the Appalachian region and the kinds of narratives you collected. Well, as a folklife specialist at the Library of Congress in the 80s and 90s, I worked on the problem of how to bring environmental policy into dialogue with places, paying special attention to how communities partake of what I call narrative climax ecologies. That term, narrative climax ecology, stretches the classification of forests as, for example, systems that climax in particular associations and habitats like beech maple or oak hickory. Uh, Another example would be the fire climax system of the New Jersey Pine Barrens, where pine trees have developed serotonous cones that depend on fires to open their cones so that their seeds can disperse. So that's a fire climax system. Narrative climax systems require a moment of narrative for renewal. These moments of renewal affirm collective identities of humans grounded in the recurring experiences shared among members of forest communities in the Appalachian Mountains. Without such moments, cohabitation of places is not possible. I remember my first few flights from Washington, D.C. to Charleston, West Virginia, flying over the deeply dissected Cumberland Plateau. One can't help but marvel at the sheer number of wrinkles sheathed in forest, where what we call mountains are actually the effect of hundreds of millions of years of erosion, water-cutting valleys through deposits of shale and sandstone. On my first flight, I wondered how in the world one could get inside of such places. A day later, I was sitting with an elderly man named Ben Burnside at the head of the left-hand fork of Rock Creek. Burnside pointed to a hollow across from us named Bee Hollow. I asked him whether all the other hollows had names. He disappeared into his house and reappeared, carrying a shard of dry wall onto which he had mapped all the side hollows, inscribing each with their name, for which he then told the origin stories. On the other side of the drywall was a penciled plan for his garden. Flying back to D.C., I realized that all those wrinkles in the hills passing below most likely had local names. In conversational storytelling, I would discover that such names would be given, along with an etymology. Uh, Bear Hollow, for example, where a man left a bucket of honey and on returning was chagrined to find that a bear had helped himself to the contents. Every rock has a name, I was told. Every curve and straight stretch in the road. Every hole of water has a name. Every little puddle. I realized that the place name etymologies were generously given when I was present by narrators who knew that I wouldn't know them, that the, and that these etymologies function as tiny rites of initiation into the very rich, multi-generational worlds made by mountain communities. Amazing. Uh, What an amazing world these stories are part of. So I know that we'll now turn to the story, and I know that your research has been very informed by phenomenology, in particular the work of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. So what are the principles of Merleau-Ponty's work that help you to understand sensory experience and its representation in narrative? Um, I wanted to understand how the landscape itself functioned as a medium for sociality between people. 
And for that, I found Merleau-Ponty's notion of what he calls the soil or flesh of sensibility to be the most helpful. He points out that never before in philosophy has that has has this thing, and he he asserts that it is indeed a thing. Never before has it been given a name. He described the flesh of sensibility as a kind of tissue or lining that spontaneously catches us up as reversible subjects and objects. Between us and what we perceive, this lining is animated by environmental cues that trigger sensory memory and is sedimented over time. This lining is deposited by our first perception and renewed by recurring perceptions that can be triggered either through direct perception or through narrative. Dennis Dickens' story illustrates these principles. It's an account of things that happened well before his birth in 1905. Around the turn of the century, in the decades leading up to the turn of the century, when the virgin forest was being taken out, in what's known now as the Big Cut. He knew the tree from the stories told by old-timers in his youth, and eventually those stories motivated him to search out the site where the tree had stood, a site haunted by that tree in the huge hole it left. And this, this urge to go and see, it's triggered by this kind of imperative to renew that flesh of sensibility. He, he found where the tree was, had stood, and he found the fragments of its roots. Bundling together the sensory experiences of old-timers, he tells us, for example, this is another aspect of it, that Harv Petri, uh, Doc Petri, was as wet as if they dipped him in the creek. This is a a fragment of um, sensibility conveyed by old-timers telling these stories when he was was young. He, He hadn't seen it. And, and then he has his own sensory encounter many decades later, where what he's presented with is a big hole in the ground. His, his story conjures not only the sensory experiences, but the multiple points of view that we could say were orchestrated by that tree over many decades. And behind those points of view are the viewers themselves now aligned with our points of view in the setting of the story. Well, this way that narrative renews sensibility is really fascinating and that you've suggested it's like the way the spores of a tree are given off for rebirth after a fire. Really fascinating. I'm imagining that some of the listeners perhaps more familiar with literary examples are are thinking of how sensory experiences are represented in narrative, most famously, of course, Proust's account of Swan's smell of the madeleine after a very long time, though that was his own experience, not something that he, that was passed on, but we do pass it on. Yeah, the, uh, the tsunami of memory <laughs> unleashed by the taste of the madeleine. Yes, right, I, I, right. I've seen that. And it's, it's actually really wonderful when you're in a, a room full of people who share those memories and they're participating with each other in this, what we could call the labor of, re, of renewing that flesh of sensibility with each other. And they, they just contribute. It's just comment after comment. You know, I once was sitting with a, a group of duck hunters uh, interviewing them about decoy carving and duck hunting and sneak box making. That's the name for a kind of a, of a boat that they make in New Jersey. Somebody mentioned marsh mud, and there was just a chorus of 
Phew. Oh, my gosh, you know, uh, I, can, I can just, but they, and they would say, but you know, that smell, it wasn't altogether unpleasant. <laughs> it's our place, and we love it. So, yes, it was, yeah. it was the occasion for celebration and renewal of not only of the sensory uh, experience, but also of the bonds to the place and to, mm-hmm. the, and to the people. So that's interesting, especially regarding conversational narrative. And today we're exploring in particular how conversational narrative might provide tools for describing the relationship between narrative memory and sensory experience. And you've talked about how the narrator weaves together world, different worlds. I wonder if you'd say more about how the concepts of story realm, tale world, and the structuring of conversational narrative work here. These are wonderful concepts that it's basically the idea. It's an idea that Bakhtin, Mikhail Bakhtin espoused with the, um, where he talked about the double groundedness of narrative, of all narrative, uh, whether it's, it's the novel or the story that's shared in conversation like this one. How is it doubly grounded? Catherine Young, who's a folklorist, came up with uh, a way of studying conversational narrative as doubly grounded by distinguishing between two worlds that are that must be constructed for any story to happen. And Bakhtin's notion of the architectonics of narrative is is, very, is a very useful way to to label this. So story, so so her her terms, story realm and tale world. Before you can have a story, and you can think about this, uh, you know, just the next time you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table after dinner and, and somebody starts to tell stories, basically, you have to, first you have to have uh, a moment in which the conversation it takes a turn and you realize, okay, we're about to have an event in the conversation and it's called a story. So somebody will say, hey, did you hear the one about? And then if people say no, just as uh, Dennis Dickens said to us, did anyone ever tell you about a walnut tree that's, that stood in hazy? And of course we're going to say no. Even if we had heard it, we were, we're going to say no, because every story is, is going to be different in the conversational setting. And it becomes very interesting to see how the teller is going to weave together the story that they're going to tell with the people who are present to it. So... The people who are present to the occasion of the of the storytelling, they form an enclave that Catherine Young has called the story realm. So this is the realm in which a story is told. Now, what is told is set in an alternate realm, in a completely different time and space. Even if it's in the same space, it's still going to be a different one because it's in a different time. So then, you know, and, and that world starts with, um, there was a walnut tree, stood in hazy, and that's the beginning of that world. Well, then we are immediately plunged back from the 1990s to the world before the turn of the, the 20th century uh, when they were taking out all the, the virgin forests. Um, so, so then what happens in the course of this narrative, it, Dickens ties, ties it the narrator has the task of making it meaningful to those who are listening. So 
John Flynn would have known a lot of those places that he mentioned. He mentioned a lot of places, and I would use those places as ways of engaging further information about this storied forest. So Everett's Fork and, and Hiram Fork, and, and you can find out how they got their names, and, and it takes you into family history and the history of, of forest species in the area and interactions with those. So he, w- he would name those, and if he, he thought maybe you wouldn't know, he would ask. So now, have you ever heard of, of Harv Petri? Well, John Flynn had, and I hadn't. But then I found, I, then I, I, I would hear other stories that people told where Harv Petri figured. He was a doctor. So he was weaving that story together with us, but he was also weaving, I mean, he was weaving the events set in that time and space called the tale world together with the understandings that he felt we had in that in that audience. So it strikes me that there's multiple tale worlds even here, you know, because there's also the tale world of the big cut, right? And there's the tale world of the whole idea that that trees should be cut when they're 60 to 80 years old. And this story is set against that, saying, well, wait a minute, there's this 100-year-old or there are many 100-year-old trees. And so there's these multiple intersecting tail worlds that, that he's navigating. Amy, that's, that's a fabulous point. Well, that's exactly what we were doing, and that's exactly what—that's uh, another way in which I found both Merleau-Ponty and, um, and, and Catherine Young's work uh, exceedingly important, because when, when you're dealing with environmental policy, you are dealing with contending modes of world-making, often contending. So, and what, what may happen in the, the politics of world-making is that some worlds are completely silenced. And so, as an as a, a civil service employee, I I felt, it, it, I felt that it was important not not to lobby for a particular outcome, but to lobby, but to assist the visibility and the audibility of voices that were unheard in public discourse about environmental policy. Uh, so yes, they are different worlds, and that's yeah. So. That brings me back to questions about sensory experience, because I I think we know that we get multiple voices in narratives that are registering different time periods, different spaces. But what really struck me about your work was this idea that sensory experiences are re-invoked and re-experienced as sensory. It's not, they're not just described that was so-and-so's experience. It's not just that someone was all wet, but this this evocative re-experiencing of the sensory that uh, that you're talking about. And you discuss how memory produces these narratives. And it's not only the immediate sensory experience, that it is, and we know that from Proust, I suppose, as well, that it's not only the immediate smell of the Madeleine, but that it can be re-invoked much later. And so I wonder if you'd say more about how sensory experience unfolds in time through narrative. Yes. Well, first I want to, want to comment that neuroscience has, it's, uh, I, the names escape me at the moment, but, but neuroscience has discovered that uh, when people are reading or listening and a sensory trigger goes off the same part of the brain lights up in the direct presence of the the uh, 
the the perception. So so perceptual activity ignites wh- whether delivered through a narrative or through you know just being out there in the presence of it. It lights up the same part of the brain. So you know, and the conclusion would be that that narratives about sensory experience would be ways to refresh that lining of sensibility that we're talking about. And it requires refreshment. And it requires, for, for place, I would say that it requires collective refreshment. It requires refreshment in the, in the form of um, collaborative storytelling and exchange of perceptions, exchanging of perceptual activity in conversation, uh, what Nadia, Nadia Saramatakis calls reflexive commensality. And, and here she's, she's extending, she's invoking the, you know, this, this idea that the sensorium, all of the, all of the senses are actually connected within the sensorium as well. So, so it becomes important to expose yourself to triggers uh, if you want to refresh your own sensorium. But it's just so amazing to me to think that um, that someone who didn't experience it in the beginning experiences it a century later, right? I mean, it's not he's not evoking his own smell of the tree, his own sense of of a big walnut. He wasn't there, yeah. But rather, somehow through narrative, this. Uh, this sensory experience is is becomes a memory that he can have as well. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's part of what I, I call narrative ecology. So that the the experience of something in narrative can motivate a, a search for to, to place oneself in direct, the direct presence of what one heard about in the narrative, um, or or to come up with you know to to encounter it by accident and with recognizing it, uh, become very excited. Uh, so yes, I would, I would hear about that. Yeah, well, well the, the other thing, I mean, what's kind of related to that is what, what D- Dickens is doing, he's operating within a, a much larger unit of time. And the tree is orchestrating that in a way. Not that he's intentionally having the tree orchestrated. I think it, I think he's demonstrating what ha- can happen in communities where memories uh, are tethered to so many different environmental cues. So he's putting. We could say that he's putting flesh on time. Also, the tree has a point of view or a role in this story, and it's it, it's not as if you're. Um, it's not that it's not that there's ventriloquizing going going on here. It's not that Dickens is suggesting that the tree speaks, but the but the tree has a a, a really evocative role in this story and has a kind of positioning, and people are positioned in relationship to that tree, to the tree. Yeah. So what Dennis Dickens is doing is he's retrieving. It's it's definitely. I said earlier that it was a collaboration of the living and the dead. He is, I mean, this is another aspect of, of Catherine Young's work with gesture and narrative, um, that, that gesture, when, when we, we are gesturing as we narrate, gesture can, can conjure up the presence of whatever it is, of an object that is actually not present. Um, so this, this is very much going on with this tree, 
And it is not only the tree itself that he's conjuring. He is conjuring when he says, they said he was as wet as if you dipped him in the creek. Who is the they? And so we've got their perspective that's being conjured. But behind their perspective and their point of view, we've got this marvelous multiplicity of point of views unfolding across a very broad stretch of time. And, and so, so when he's, he says that, he's, he's actually also conjuring those, uh, they're not, I'm not going to call them objects, they're the people. The, the, the perspectives behind the points of view, behind the points of view, you have the viewers themselves. So that we are viewing, we, within the tale, within the story realm, are viewing something in the same in the same way that people within the tail world are viewing it. In a way, that Bakhtin calls it the blossom in which sl- sleeps this, the aesthetic of the narrative. And, and that is where, where we not only behold ourselves from the point of view of a character, but we are sharing the point of view of a character in a very real way, and it is mediated by the tree. Yeah, I find that so much more helpful than, than a ventriloquizing understanding of agency or something mm-hmm. and the use of your term conjuring and the way that the story conjures the tree or the way that the names of places when you were flying over them uh, that conjure the places the, you know that takes us back to that idea that the names for the wrinkles in the landscape the names for the wrinkles in the landscape and the language itself Again, this is a, a discourse that I noted was heavily saturated with quotation. People were always talking about what they said or they heard or whatever, which has the effect of really populating uh, the world with multiple perspectives. And there's also something that listeners may be very familiar with. Uh, this often, often we may find ourselves stricken with a desire to go and see something that our ancestors may have seen. You know, even if it's the rhododendron tree outside the building that replaced the old homestead, but the rhododendron tree is still there. And and you realize that you're looking at something that they they probably looked at. Um, this is very common. People people will talk about just, just trying to see something that people who are no longer with us can see. And But it's also what's remarkable about it after hearing you talk about it is the ways that people conjure things that aren't there anymore, not not imagining them. There's no rhododendron. So mm-hmm. people who go on tours of Holocaust sites where their mm. families lived, and they go to a place where a house no longer stands or a village that no longer stands or even a cemetery that's been mostly destroyed. Mm-hmm. And this feeling, this lure, as you say, to go and visit and conjure the... Not even the things they saw, but the things that you can no longer see. Yeah. Like the tree, right? I mean, so he's, he goes back in the story. He goes back to see that he has to find the site of the tree that no longer stands. Though he does find a remnant, right? He mm-hmm. finds a piece of it. So we're inserting, there's part, part of this has, could have to do with this effort to insert ourselves within uh, a frame of time that Margaret Mead called the human unit of time. It would be the span of time represented between the m- memories of a young boy received from the oldest person 
he might know, and this would be Dennis Dickens in the story, that time span and the, and the span that would be represented by the transmission of that memory to a great-grandchild, for example. So it's a, it's a time span that, that kind of could cover about seven generations, the, the human unit of time. Folklorists often talk about how the meanings of texts are context-dependent. How do stories and their contexts interact, or how does a phenomenological approach to conversational storytelling help us to arrive at meanings? Well, yeah, you bring up a really important and interesting point, Amy, and this has been been a hallmark of folklorist research since the 1970s, really. So these notions of text and context share the same root as textile, reminding us of metaphors for for tale-telling, yarn spinning, fabricating, and weaving. Like other elders we spoke with on Coal River, Dennis Dickens was masterful at weaving together the worlds we've talked about earlier, the world of weaving together those two worlds uh, uh, that, that unfold in the, in the course of putting a story together in conversation, the story realm and the tale world. He weaves those together. The world of the walnut tree at the head of Hazy Creek at the turn of the 20th century, he weaves that into the world of his listeners in the late 20th century. Um, he invokes John Flynn's knowledge of Harv Petrie, a large man, a key player in the tale, whose very size supports the old-timers reports that the walnut tree was 10 feet in diameter. Okay, this amplifies the authority of old-timers, on whose testimony Dickens himself is relying. And he does something characteristic of older, accomplished narrators. He constructs a mirror that supports his own authority to speak. The tale world of the tree standing at the head of Hazy mirrors the story realm of us sitting there listening to Dennis Dickens, where he himself is an old-timer giving us vivid sensory accounts he'd heard as a boy, listening to just such old-timers as himself, accounts that he was able to verify decades later through his own encounter with an indentation 10 feet in diameter haunted by the walnut tree that once stood at the head of Hazy proving itself by remnants of what must have been a massive root wad. So Dickens is lobbing this eyewitness testimony of those old-timers who would have actually seen the circumstances under which trees got to be much older than, than trees that the Forest Service was deeming ready for the harvest. He's lobbing that eyewitness testimony against the ready-for-harvest metrics of late 20th century foresters. Uh, Through his meticulous attention to essential details, Dickens is drawing on a flesh of sensibility, memories sedimented between humans and forest species built up by the exchange of sensory memory over over hundreds of years, really, uh, to refute the, the U.S. Forest Service's narrative. Um, so sociolinguist uh, William Labov identified this kind of mirroring as a strategy of blue-collar workers, a narrative strategy. But we also, of course, find it in literature, in, fra- in very famous frame narratives, and, and it is used in very innovative ways by Angela Carter, for example, to create mirrors in her tales that track the transformation of a relationship between narrator and reader. 
um, in in a, 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 a fabulous restoration of what folklorists refer to as the fairy tale mirror. So, as you've said, these narratives are interactive. Um, are interactive based and they produce shared sensory experiences. So say a little bit more about how this commensality, this shared experience of sensory memory works. Well, it's really interesting. I, I said that he's actually working with what we would, could, could argue is the, the soil or flesh of sensibility that really is between people who have exchanged these stories for generations. So what, what he's doing with that, that lining, that flesh, that soil of sensibility is putting together time's body. He's opening up time's body for inhabiting. Time's body is a term used by uh, sociologist John McNeil uh, to refer to something akin to Bakhtin's notion of, of the chronotope, the idea of putting flesh on time. So he does it with great attention to the specificity of, of sensory experiences uh, throughout all of his narratives. And this walnut tree gives us an example of what Margaret Mead called the human unit of time. The human unit of time is the space between uh, an old man's memories of the things that the oldest old-timer he knew as a young boy told him, and and those memories, which he then relays to a very young child. It's a span of about seven generations. So what this accomplishes for us is that we can experience ourselves within a time frame that exceeds our own. And this is consoling. It's not just time, it's perception. We are, um, we are able to access uh, the perceptions of those who used the very same names for the things that we're looking at now. And that's how we may come to know ourselves, uh, as Merleau Ponty puts it, as part of a seeing and a saying that is much older than, and I would add, much younger than ourselves. So knowing this, we might take care to tend the flesh of sensibility as that lining within which we are especially connected to ancestors and future generations. Elderly storytellers on Coal River were especially attentive to that, modeling a practice that I call tending sensibility as a form of living heritage. Thank you so much, Mary. It's been a pleasure to talk with you about this narrative and to learn about your uh, work on narrative, your research on time and memory and sensory experience. Well, Amy, the pleasure has been been very much mine. And of course, much of what, I, what I've learned to appreciate about narrative, I've learned through your writings as well. So thank you so much for having me here on Project Narrative Podcast. Thank you. I want to thank our listeners and say that we appreciate your feedback. And you can send it to us at projectnarrative at osu.edu. Also, you can send it to our Facebook page or to our Twitter account, which is at Project Narrative Ohio State. And you can find additional episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.